0: Genesis uh, chapter 34 Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor, and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised will not their livestock their property and all their beasts be ours only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us and all who went out of the gate of his of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of his city on the third day when they were sore two of the sons Of Jacob, Simon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon and the slain and plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed both I and my household, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute?
1: So, this is a kind of unique story amidst our study through Genesis, Um. Wow, there's there's a lot of stuff uh, that happens in here. There's a lot of story. There's a lot of kind of peculiar approaches to how to deal with people. There's lots of different ways to sin. There's lots of different ways to um, kind of overcome sin in in sinful ways. And and we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about all of that. This is kind of a like I said. This is kind of a weird outlier from kind of the main story, like we've been following just how the families have grown, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their families are growing, they're finding their wives, they're having their kids, all of that. And then among this, we're going to get this one little aside of this, of this sinful act that takes place against one of Jacob's children, in this case it's his daughter Dinah, and, and the way that his sons react to that sin that takes place against her. So, so just, just as kind of a blanket statement, it should be no surprise to us at this point that, that the son of Jacob, the next heirs to the promise of God, the next ones through whom God is going to fulfill all of these things that he said he's going to accomplish. It should be no surprise to us that the next generation are sinful people too. right? All along the way, Abraham, sinful. Isaac, sinful. Jacob, sinful. So Jacob's, Jacob's kids, equally sinful. It should be no surprise that these promises are continuing to be fulfilled by people who are imperfect. Because again, none of these people are the promised Messiah. None of these are the ones who are the promised solution to the broken problem of sin. None of these are the end game. All of these are just steps along the way. And after seeing what happens through this whole chapter, it should be no surprise to us either that God is never once mentioned in chapter 34. Never once. Nothing about the way God was working, nothing about the way that God has told people to behave. This whole chapter is absent of the presence of God. And the way that that people are acting, the way that people are behaving, the actions that, that Jacob's children are taking, it's not surprising that they are not looking to God for how to handle the situation as to what happens. So so let's look again at the the many instances. I just want us to kind of wrap our mind around what happens um, when when we're faced with kind of a godless situation, what kinds of things can happen. Let's let's, let's kind of look at all the the little pieces of the story that take place here. At the very beginning, it says, Dinah went off to spend time with the women of the land. That, That phrasing has a little bit of a negative connotation, kind of a, I'm going to go out and incorporate and hang out with people who are not the people of God. I'm not saying she is not a victim here and that she was not sinned against. She absolutely was. This is not a, Dinah brought this on herself because she was hanging out where she should not have been. It's nothing like that that I'm trying to suggest. However, it seems that, that Jacob's whole family is not opposed to, separate from completely, the idea of incorporating themselves into the culture of the people Around, I mean, even look at Jacob's response by the end where he says, you've ruined my reputation with these people, right? And we'll come back to that in just a second. But, but it, seems that, it seems that there's lots of incorporating in other cultures, not, not this separated, called out from, made, a, made, made, made our own unique people that are the people of God. And so it's not surprising that the people that she's hanging out with are going to treat her sinfully because they, are not also, they also are not the people of God. So, so even, even at the very beginning, um, we see that there's this kind of loss of identity that's being kind of hinted at, alluded to at the beginning of the chapter. Second thing that we see is that just like their father, Jacob's sons are also deceivers, right? We've talked about this. Jacob, Jacob's name basically means he deceives. He is, he is deceptive. He's, he's done this throughout his, his journey, throughout his time. As we've been studying him, we've seen different ways that he's deceived people. And here again, Simeon and Levi both deceive Shechem and his father, whose name I just blanked on. more. Sorry. They say, we can make this right. We'll be good. All you have to do is is get circumcised, you and all the guys in your city, and then, and then we'll totally come be friends with you. We'll be at peace. All of this will be great, right? But they knew, it's not this idea came to them after this, that, oh, now that they're weak, we can go take them out. No, it wasn't that. It said they dealt with them deceptively. They knew, oh, we're going to ask them to do this, and that's going to be our way of coming in and overcoming them, of, of defeating them. So even from the very beginning, we see, again, I mean we use that phrase you know apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean we keep saying every single step along the way all of these people are sinful. All of these people are wicked in some way or another. And we see just how closely connected the sins of the children are from their father. The first thing that we the first act that we really see from Simeon and Levi, these two sons of Jacob, is an act of deception so that they can they can get the better of somebody else. Now granted that somebody else has committed sin, they've done something evil, they're angry about it. We're going to talk about their response to that in just a second, but, but I just want you to see that, that these sins kind of echo throughout generations, and it's a thing that we have to be aware of as we look at our own lives and we see what kinds of things am I you know, kind of predisposed to be tempted by. So Jacob's sons are also deceivers. And here's the thing. It's not just Reuben and Levi. Yes, they were the murderers. They're the ones who went into the city and, and while the men were all weak and they, and they killed all the men, right? But, but it says all the sons of Jacob came in and plundered the city and carried everything away, right? They were all involved in kind of the final decimation of this whole city, all of these people. So it's not, it's not just singled in on Reuben Sorry, is it Reuben and Levi, Simeon and Levi? I I typed Reuben, it meant Simeon. It's been a week, guys. But the truth is still there. These two sons, yes, they're the ones who went in and killed. But all of of the sons of Jacob are involved. All of them are connected. All of them are pillaging the town. And, And here's the thing. Shechem absolutely sinned. He absolutely should not have done the thing that he did to Dinah. He should not have sinned against her in this way. He should not have taken her. He should not have defiled her. He should not. None of this is good. And I don't want you to see any of the people in here as particularly the heroes of the story. Because honestly, in this story, there are no heroes. Even by the end, when Jacob hears what happens, Jacob's response isn't, Oh, you have done this evil thing in the sight of the Lord. Let me go and pray that the Lord might forgive us. No, what is it that he says? Man, now you're going to make all of our neighbors mad at me and maybe they're going to come take our stuff. His response is political. His response is not spiritual. His response isn't a concern for the hearts of his sons and the sin that was committed against his daughter. But rather, his concern is that this is going to hurt his reputation and maybe hurt his bottom line. Maybe it's going to, maybe it's going to take away from his ability to remain rich and wealthy and powerful. Maybe it's going to take away his ability to trade evenly with people because they're not going to trust him because they're going to think people are going to take advantage of them. Nothing in this chapter, none of what we see take place is good. So, so what are we supposed to do with a chapter that ultimately is about revenge and retaliation where somebody's done something mean to you? Where, where you feel hurt or betrayed or you feel wronged or something. And it's like, none of what has happened to me is fair. This shouldn't happen. I should get even or I should make it fair. Or I should make it balanced. That's, that's our natural response. It's easy for us to see the response of Jacob's sons and say, well, I get why they're wanting to do that. This bad thing happened. They want to go make it right. And that's a natural instinct that we tend to have to face when somebody does something wrong to us, or we see something wrong happening in the world, our temptation is, oh, well, I should go fight against that. I should do something to the people who are doing this evil thing. And that is, unfortunately, even though that's the way we naturally want to respond, that is not the way that the Bible, that God would have us respond to that thing. And so, and so for the, for most of our time today, we're going to spend looking at what, what the Bible says Regarding revenge and retaliation, how we should respond when people have wronged us, when people have sinned against us in whatever way. And, and, and I just kind of want to preempt this by saying there may be times that you think of a specific instance where somebody has sinned against you or <clears throat> currently where somebody is sinning against you. And I'm about to read a whole bunch of verses that say basically don't get them back. Don't try to make it even. don't try to, Don't try to make it like, perfectly fair between. And you're going to say, but that's not fair. That's going to leave this imbalance. That means they may get away with the thing that they did. And I know that you're going to be dealing with that. And I want you to know that, that by the end of this, facing unfair things is honestly one of the most fair experiences that we can have. We're going to work toward that idea. So just, just kind of keep that in mind. Facing unfair things is one of the most fair experiences that I think we as the church can experience. So, what do we do with this narrative passage that's all about this this depravity, this brokenness, all the sin that's taking place, no mentions of God? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to apply that? Well, I don't think we're supposed to look at it and say, so which of these people should I try to be most like? Because again, like I said, the answer is none of them. Don't try to be like anybody in this chapter. What does the Bible say when it comes to retaliation Retribution, payback, revenge, these kinds of ideas. Well, let's start in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 17 through 21. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here's the thing. That is really hard. That's a really hard ask. Somebody has done something evil against you. Your, your temptation, again, is to get back at them, to make it right, to say, I have to do, this. there's, there's got to be this point, counterpoint, get back at you sort of thing, right? And, and I mean, I love that it even uses the word avenge in there. Like, like all of pop culture for the last two years has been about avenging, right? We got to get back at the person who did something wrong. We got to win. We got to beat them a movie reference. You can go find that one on your own. But what God is saying here, what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul, is that 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 idea, that desire to make things right, don't don't be tempted by that because all you're going to do is continue to heap evil on top of more evil. Right? Because that's the counterpoint that he's making. Don't repay evil for evil but give thought to what is honorable inside of all. Do good things. Do honorable things. Do things that are pleasing to other people. Live peaceably. Here's the thing. It's implying that revenge is, in fact, evil. The idea that I am going to do something to make something right is, in fact, sin. And you may be saying, but but it's going to make it fair. It's going to make it balanced. And I don't want to make this a commentary on on justice, because justice is still a thing that we should be concerned for. But we aren't judge, jury, executioner. That's really what he's getting at. When something bad has happened to you, he's saying your goal should be able to go above and beyond in showing kindness and good and overwhelm the evil itself, defeating the evil not by contributing more evil to the situation and thus dragging the whole situation further and further down, as we saw happen in Genesis chapter 34. But instead, that you overcome evil with good. Because, because here's the thing, the way that we respond to evil as the church, when we are wronged, the way that we respond to being wronged is a demonstration of the power of the gospel. And it is a means of sharing the gospel. I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew chapter 5. This is verse 38. It says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He's saying, go beyond when you are being, and again, wronged, inconvenienced. When things are hard and somebody asks you to do something that, that's going to that's gonna mess up your schedule, whatever. I mean, think about this. And for just one a quick aside. I don't want to say that this doesn't mean self-defense is bad. When it says somebody slaps you, let them slap you again. Like, I'm not, this isn't a commentary on if somebody's trying to kill you, defending yourself. That's a completely different conversation that we can have another time. This is talking about when somebody does something to you, don't make it a point of, again, getting back at them. But instead, if somebody does something to you, see how you can go above and beyond to, to show grace to that person. This, this speaks to a serving nature rather than, than one of balancing scales. It should be what is at the heart of every believer, this desire to serve and love others and show others the love of God that is present within us. It's literally the idea of going the extra mile. Like, that's where this phrase comes from. In in this culture, at this time, a Roman soldier could force anyone who was not a Roman soldier to carry their stuff for them for one mile. They could say, I need you to carry my things, and you could not say No even if you had an appointment, even if you had somewhere to be, even if you were with your family, if they said, "Hey, you're coming with me, I need you to carry my things for me." You would carry it for them for 1 mile. And what Jesus is saying is, that's inconvenient. That's unnecessary. That's that's hard that might make you angry. Instead of carrying it 1 mile and then dropping it at the legal end and saying, "I'm done," and turning and walking away, what would happen if you said, "I'm going to keep going?" I'm going to keep carrying this thing for you. If somebody asks you for, your, for, for part of your jacket, then, then give them something extra. You say, oh, here, let me give you more. I'm going to make sure that you're warm or you're covered or you're protected. It's beyond just accomplishing the task that you're legally required to, and it's beyond having a, a sour grapes kind of attitude when you're, when you're forced into something that might leave you feeling uncomfortable or angry attacked, taken advantage of, whatever it may be. Instead of trying to say, I'm going to make this balance, instead of trying to make this even, saying, I'm going to go even further in my way, in my effort to demonstrate love and service toward you. I don't know how many, I mean, we've, we've been talking about this kind of thing off and on. Um, but, I mean, if you've been at CRC for any Length of time you have either gotten a ride or been given—you have either given a ride or received a ride to or from church. Some of you, that was today. This idea, though, and 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 we've been talking about this idea of giving people rides for longer. It's, it's part of who we are as a church, and I think it kind of connects well to that passage of going the extra mile. It's it's not just that you accomplish that. Hey, can you get me to church? Or, hey, can you get me to this place? Hey, can you give me a ride somewhere? But, but what's the extra mile that we can go in serving people? And I think we as a church have seen that we have been able to really build relationships with other people as we give them rides. I don't know if, if, you, if you have given a ride or been given a ride. I don't know how your relationship with the person who did the driving or the person that you were driving around has changed. But I would imagine that you trust that person more you feel closer to that person. You feel like you can connect with that person a little bit more. I'm seeing a couple of head nods. But this idea of going the extra mile, not just for accomplishing a task, not just I'll give you a ride just so you get there, but I'm going to give you a ride for a purpose because I want to benefit you. I want to, I want to, I want to reveal to you the love of Christ in some way. I want to, I want to give you some of myself in this. I want to have a lasting impact on you. It's hard. It can be inconvenient. The more we get into doing these kinds of things and serving one another, we may be taken advantage of. And even when we're being taken advantage of, instead of saying, I have to stop, you're taking advantage of me, it seems like what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 is that, no, just, just go on keep going, serve, love, even when it gets hard, even when it gets difficult, even when it seems unfair to just take it on the chin. He's saying, sometimes you're going to have to just take it on the chin and then keep going to love people and serve them. That's what's different about us as the people of God. We aren't the ones who, when we are sinned against, when somebody wrongs us, Everything that we do is about getting them back. You stole my thing, I'm going to steal your thing back. You kill this person, I kill you back. That's, that's not who the people of God are. When bad things have happened to us, our perspective on this has to be different and our actions that we take when people do wrong things toward us has to be different. I'm going to keep reading in Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus keeps going on he says you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy and i'm just going to just real quick right there on that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy he, the section before he said you've heard that it was said to you he's quoting the old testament this eye for an eye tooth for tooth passage in this verse here you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy that's not anywhere in the old testament this is, this is Jesus saying, now you've taken that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and you've, and you've misused it. You've taken it out of context, and now you guys are teaching it incorrectly to the point that you're supposed to hate anyone who's against you. So, so this is out of context, Old Testament. This isn't even scripture that he's, he's helping them understand. He's now taking, he's taking this, this area of misinterpretation of the Old Testament law. And he's trying to to turn it completely upside down. So he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is the point that Jesus is trying to get to. He's saying, if you're just nice to the nice people and you're mean to the mean people, you're no different than everybody else. Because that's what we're naturally inclined to do. To see something bad that's happened and to react in a big, strong, negative way. But what should set us apart from everybody else should be that that in the times when, when there is that tension, when there is that brokenness, when there is that severing of relationship, when there is this cultural divide between two groups. I mean, he even mentions the Gentiles, right? He says... The Gentiles are nice to each other. What would set us apart is if we were also nice to them. If we were also loving toward them. If we sought to serve them. The people of God should be defined not just by our love for each other, because that makes sense. What what doesn't make sense is our love for people that that are different from us. Or our love for people that maybe don't love the same things that we do. The people that are unsaved and our love for them. That will be shocking to our culture. And the way that we do that demonstrates that we are in Christ. He's saying this is, this is a telltale sign of your being in Christ. Look at what he said. Love your reason, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is how we show that we're in Christ by the way that we love those who have wronged us or the way that we love those who have been separated from us or the way that we love those who have done unfair things toward us. And then he gives us some perspective on evil in general, right? He's saying, God is the same God who makes the sun rise and set on good and rise and set on evil. What does he mean by that? Even in the good things that are happening for us, and for the, those who are saved, God is in control. For the bad things that happen, and for the unsaved, God is in control. He doesn't relinquish control whether or not you're doing good or you're doing bad, whether or not something is 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 a blessing or a curse. Good, evil, sinful, righteous. God is in control over all these things. He makes the sun rise on evil. He sends rain on just and on the unjust. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying sometimes he blesses the people who are unsaved separate from him and are accomplishing evil things that are against him. What are we supposed to understand about this? Think about chapter 34. What should the perspective of everybody who was in that situation be? God is trying to do something in this moment. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying Shechem had not sinned. I'm not saying there wasn't sin rampant throughout all of chapter 34. We've covered that. But even in that, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God is still at work in whatever way. And having that perspective, understanding that when evil is taking place, that God is working in it, protects us from this, I have to make it right because this bad thing has happened. Because we see what God is, we we, we understand that God is doing something and that protects us from that rage that can build up inside and say, I'm going to lash out now. I'm going to fight back. Because you may be hearing in these verses in Matthew 5 where where it's like, that sounds really hard. If somebody hits me, I'm going to hit them back. If somebody sins against me or steals something from me or says something mean to me, I have to make them feel pain too the way that I have been made to feel pain. But if we have a right perspective of why evil is present... And that God is using evil to accomplish his grander goal of glorifying himself and saving us from our sins and restoring us into right relationships with him. If we as the church can have that perspective, and we're the only ones who can have that perspective because we have the Holy Spirit in us, giving us understanding, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. If we have Christ in us and we can know this, then we are the only ones who can live in this way. We are the only ones who can respond differently when we are faced with evil because we're the only ones who have this perspective. That's why we are the only ones who really can take unfair treatment and just go with it, glorifying God and loving and serving those who are wronging us. And again, I know, you're probably thinking, but this situation is so unfair. This situation is so hard. This situation is so painful. How can I not do something about it? Well, of anybody who ever lived, I think Jesus is the best example of somebody who was treated unfairly and did not retaliate. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah saying, when the Messiah comes, and, and now that he has come, he's going to be treated unjustly. The only perfect human to walk the earth is going to be beaten and mocked is going, to be, is going to be tried as a criminal and killed for crimes that he did not commit, sins that were not present in his life. If anyone ever had the right to say, I'm going to get you back for doing this evil to me, it's Jesus. And yet, like it says, he did not open his mouth. He said nothing. He did not fight back. He took it. And in doing so, blessed everyone even more than we could have ever imagined by virtue of his death on the cross so that we could be restored to right relationship with him. And that's why I say being treated unfairly and responding not in an attempt to make things fair or right And responding in an unfair way, you know, like by not trying to defeat the evil, by not trying to, you know, have a bunch of guys go get themselves circumcised so that they're really sore and easy to kill, which is super effective, by the way. Instead of being those people, instead of being defined like that, we're in the family with the guy who took it on the chin better than anybody else ever has. And that's why I say being treated unfairly begins to feel fair because because we're right in it with our Savior. We're right in it with our Messiah. We're right in it with Jesus, who has experienced all of the same stuff. Every time you feel like you've been wronged, every time you feel like you've experienced some evil against you, you're not unique in that. Jesus felt that. Jesus was wrong. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was left. But yet, he didn't complain. He didn't fight back. He didn't make it right. He didn't go slaughter a whole city of people just to make a point. He didn't plunder a village. No. He died. Humbly. But in doing so, overcame evil. Became the solution that we've been looking to this whole time through Genesis. Became the one who took our sin on himself. And became the one who could restore the divide became the one who makes it possible for us to have this right perspective of God because we can have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We, we can understand that God is sovereign over these things so that we can have this right perspective when evil is present in our lives. All of this works together because because Jesus has already been our example for that, and Jesus has already accomplished all that he needed to accomplish so that we could be added to the family of God in this way, so that we can stand out from the rest of society. Because when we are wronged, we don't cry unfair, we don't cry retaliation, we cry Jesus. Let's pray.